Greetings, humans. You have entered the command zone. Your destination for all aspects of Elder Dragon Highlander. Enjoy your stay. All right, Jimmy. All right, name this tune. Da 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 da. Rocking. Da 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 episode for you guys today. Uh, Josh came up with this. You, you brewed it madly in your room the other day. We went a little deep on this one. Yes, but before we get into the show, we're going to do a couple quick call-outs. The first is Card Kingdom is the sponsor for this show, so make sure you check out cardkingdom.com slash commandzone for all of your singles and sealed product. Great place to go. Just use the affiliate link. Helps out the show a ton. They have the fastest shipping in the business. The other way to support the Command Zone is directly through patreon.com slash commandzone. In fact, we call out one patron Every single episode, and hey. this episode is dedicated to Frederick, Frederick Garnval. You're Frederick. a baller. Thanks. You, you rock. Thanks. Uh, you rocky. You rocky. <laughs> we tied all right. it all together. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's jump right into the main topic. We have been asked about this a lot over the years. People email and comment and tweet asking about a basic template for building a commander deck. Um, you know, I think it's a lot of people building their first commander deck, or maybe, you know, they started with the pre-cons, but they're building one from scratch for the first time. Mm-hmm. And it's a daunting task. It is very daunting. Age. Yeah. We've, we've talked a little bit about before. We actually have a deck list on Tapped Out that has, like, a bunch of essential cards that can go in any deck, which is a nice starter base, because a lot of them are on colorless, ramp, or whatever. Yeah, it has, um, like, the staple cards, so you know what, like, normal, like, Cyclonic Rift, if you're playing blue, put that in there. Yeah, better put it in there. <laughs> But we wanted to talk about some philosophies. I also, you know what I think leads people to ask us this question a lot is our stats. Because we're giving numbers of like in these categories have roughly this amount of numbers and they want some numbers in some other categories. Mm -hmm. So we're hoping we can answer some of those questions and just help people along as they're brewing their commander decks. Now, obviously, this is going to change. Like it's not going to work for every deck. Giving a baseline is going to, some, some people are going to be like, yeah, but in my Daxos deck, I would never do that. Yeah. Because yeah. you just can't give a template that's going to work for every single deck. You can just sort of give some basic guidelines that say like most of the time, this is probably close to right. But in, in certain decks, it's going to be completely wrong. Yeah. And the main idea here too, is ensuring that you're going to have a good time playing because a lot of what we're going to talk about is like consistency in your deck. And that's why we always do the stats to make sure like, okay, you have X, Y, and Z factored in your deck's going to pretty consistently actually be able to play itself. Yep. And even with the stats, we'll say things you'll notice like, well, let's go through our normal stats, right? So we always begin with the stuff that every deck needs. So that's somewhere around 10 mana ramp cards, 10 card draw cards, five single target removal cards, and five board wipes. Now, before we break down why that is, I just want to say that we've had many decks on the show that don't fall into these these numbers correctly. Like, they might have 20 mana ramp cards and, Mm -hmm. like, three card draw cards. I think the important thing when you're breaking that mold, strength you know, very far from these numbers is to have a reason why you're doing it. It's not never do it. It's just like, well, in this deck, I have a reason why I don't want a lot of mana ramp. Okay, fine. As long as there's a reason why. Yep. If you're like, I don't have a lot of mana ramp. Why? I don't know. Well, you probably need more mana ramp. <laughs> okay, so let's just talk about these categories. We've we've covered them many times on the show, so we'll be quick. 
Mana Ramp is just a card that gets you ahead of the lands you should have if you had played one land every turn. So if on turn two you play a Signet, then on turn three you drop your land. Normally you should only have three mana available, but because of that Signet, you have four mana available. You have therefore ramped. Yep, you're going down the ramp, going faster and faster. Everyone else is like plodding along. You're slightly ahead. It's so important in EDH because we need to get to the point where we are casting big things or casting multiple things and if we can get to that point before our opponents we're in a very advantageous position and oftentimes you want to get ahead because that lets you gives you time to cast stuff like card draw spells so card draw is the second category and again we we advocate about the same amount of somewhere around 10 card draw cards we talked about we did a whole issue uh, episode on card draw versus card advantage but card draw basically it sort of well, you talked about consistency earlier, Jimmy. Mm-hmm. So card draw is really the key to consistency. For one thing, it helps you hit your land drops. One of the things you definitely want to do is make sure that on every turn of the game, if you can, you play one land. Because that means by turn seven or eight, you have at least the maximum amount of land, or at least the minimum amount right. that lands per turn would give you. That's very important. You can find yourself easily in games where if that doesn't happen, you're on turn seven or eight. You've got five man available. Other people have ramped a little and played a land every turn. They got 10 or 12. It's just very hard to even have an impact on the game at that point. Uh, so that's the first reason why card draw is good. Second reason is just options. Yeah, options are always good in EDH, especially when you're trying to get to your cards like your single target removal or your board wipes or your mana ramp. Uh, oftentimes I find myself in the position in the game where I want to have as many options as possible going into the turn, not just a like cookie cutter. Well, I have to do X and Y because that's all I've got in my hand. That's all I got in my hand, even though these other threats are staring me down and I know I need to do this eventually in my hand, but I can't get to eight mana fast enough. And then single target removal is just anything that it, it, it gets a one thing, right? Or maybe two things. Um, which is different than board wipes, which obviously usually say the word all on them. Um, And single target removal, it can be something like walking ballista. You know, that's something that's going to shoot little BBs at something until it kills it. But it might be able to kill two or three things. You might be able to recur it or, you know, proliferate it. Um, Or just add mana to it over the long term. You might be able to flicker it if it's like acidic slime. But those still count as single target removal in your deck because when they happen, they get one thing. But being able to reuse them is one of the things we'll talk about later. That still leaves it in the realm of single target removal. Yep. Uh, Board wipes, again, we said this earlier, but that they say the word all. But it doesn't mean it wipes everything on the board. So it could destroy all enchantments. That would count as a board wipe. It could destroy all artifacts. Or Vandal Blast, which doesn't say all, but it says all your opponents. Right. Which is actually better. Cyclonic Rift is a soft board wipe. Yep, but it's 100% a board wipe. I would count it in the board wipe category. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bane of Progress, it's on a creature. Don't remind me about that. It destroys all artifacts and enchantments. I would count that as a board wipe. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And and something else about single target removal, just to back up, because I see it in the notes, is that really single target removal is just sort of ways to interact with your opponent's plans. So I would even put counter spells in the single target removal category. Uh, I would maybe even think about graveyard hate, depending on the kind of graveyard hate, right. as a single target removal, because that's a way to stop a lot of shenanigans that are you know pretty prevalent in EDH. Yeah, and I would say like a card like a, um, Scavenging Ooze would be... A single target removal spell if you're playing against a lot of decks like Carador yes. or decks that like Marin or not Marin necessarily decks that like using the graveyard. Uh, however, 
Otherwise, I'd say it counts as like half a single target removal spell if it's just against the meta that doesn't really care about graveyard stuff. So these these numbers are they're a little bit liquid. They're they're flexible, but you you kind of like average it out and you go, okay, I've got about five because maybe I have a scavenging ooze and a deathright shaman, and that right. adds up to one single target removal spell. Maybe I mean, like and ramp. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's more of an art than a science. Um, okay, so that's thirty cards, right? Ten mana ramp, ten card draw. Five single target removal, five board wipes. Again, just just rough numbers. And thirty then, cards, though. That's thirty cards. Yeah. Which leaves us about sixty nine cards left in the deck because decks have ninety nine and your commander, or ninety eight and two partner commanders. That's a good point. <laughs> well, uh, if it's partner commanders, I'm just gonna allow you to do the math on your own. But so we've got about sixty nine cards left. About thirty eight of that is gonna be land, and I'd say that's a good number. Again, thirty eight. That doesn't mean that I don't have a deck that has 32 lands in it. It's just there's a reason it has 32 lands. And I also have a deck that has 47 lands in it. But there's a reason it has 47 lands. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a reason why you have more or less lands, then you probably should have about 37, 38. Yeah. I, I would advocate 38, which is a little bit higher. It's, it's Most people would say 36 to 37. Just because in general, and I think we talked about this on a show before, it's a little bit better in EDH to be flooded than it is to be uh, mana screwed. Yeah, and especially with the Vancouver Mulligan now being in place, it's very hard to craft an opening hand that guarantees you the first three land drops or whatever. So you want your deck to just have a little edge in terms of being able to draw into your land drops. So now we're at 68 cards. We're not going to go into how to build a mana base. In fact, we did two episodes uh, before, which is episode 39 and episode 40, talking about uh, mana base building. And if you're familiar with the professor, he has a number of videos on... Uh, specifically crafting two-color, three-color, four-color, and five-color mana bases. One that you're a guest on, actually. Yeah, I guess it's on the four-color one. So Mm -hmm. uh, you can look those up. We don't want to delve into that here. So basically, that's 68 cards, which leaves us about 31 cards that are really the meat of your deck. Now, that number is going to sound low, right? Because you're like, only 31 cards out of 99. A third of my deck is my deck? That doesn't make sense. Just trust us. We're going to get into why that number is actually a little higher than it seems. But for now... The meat of your deck is about 31 cards you're playing with. Mm-hmm. So to figure out what those cards are, there's a few questions that we want to ask ourselves sort of right from the start. Question number one, what is the goal of my deck? To have fun. <laughs> What's the strategic goal of my deck? Yeah. In broad terms, how does it win? And this is often, but not always, uh, largely affected by sort of the biggest question, which is, who is my commander? Yeah, if you ever need to wonder, like, hmm, I need the direction to go with my deck, you can just look at your commander, and it's literally written on the card oftentimes. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to, but that is a good way to go to give you sort of a roadmap or a good game plan. And mm-hmm. I like to try and boil down the goal of my deck, how does it win, into, like, one sentence, one simple sentence. I, I sort of think of it as, like, a log line for a movie. yeah. That's actually a really good way of looking at it. And it. This is like the most important part of building a deck for me is being able to know what the goal is. Otherwise, you're just going to do a lot of meandering. Yeah, exactly. And and it gets you into those situations where you're trying to decide between certain cards, and then you go, well, what's my log line? What's the goal of my deck? It's that one sentence. Well, which one of the cards works better with that? And a lot of times that will very easily be like, oh, yeah, well, then I don't want that card. Yeah. Um, so sometimes these questions are really easy to answer, right, depending on the deck. So like Saskia that what's the goal of my deck how does it win well i want to attack with creatures yeah 
Pretty simple. I want to do a lot of damage because my commander allows me to hit a lot of people. So, yeah. But it has to be combat damage, otherwise Sasuke is not doing anything. Yeah, and now you can obviously like break this down even further, but overall, just sort of like the one sentence that you can apply to every part of the deck, what is that? And it's like, I want to attack people with creatures. Yeah, so... Or does, do combat damage. So each card you can just look at through the lens of, does this help me do combat damage with creatures in some way? Mm -hmm. um, Phoenix, I want to mill my opponents. So you can be looking at a lot of cards, most of the cards in your deck, and saying, does this help me mill my opponents? Now, Phoenix does it with, by the, the creatures sort of having, quote-unquote, big butts, mm -hmm. uh, high toughness. And you can do it to yourself as well. Yeah. So I want to mill can also be <laughs> a theme or goal of the deck. You could 100% build that deck of I want to mill myself mm -hmm. and get uh, value out of my graveyard. Um, Nekusar. I want everyone to draw a lot of cards, and then I want to tax them for it. Ping, 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 ping. Pretty easy. Perforos. I want to kill everyone with Perforos, and that means putting a lot of creatures into play with Perforos on the board. Yep. So basically, I want, yeah, I just want to put a lot of creatures into play, because that's going to kill them. Uh, Karlov, Ailey, Aloro. A lot of times these decks are, I want to weaponize life gain. Mm-hmm. Or create a state where I'm going, I can't lose because of my life. But uh, at some point, and I think the important distinction here is like, when we talk about Phoenix, it was like, I want to mill myself. It's like, that's not actually a win condition. And it's important, I think, yeah. to say, unless your goal of the deck is to not win, and I know some decks are that, but in general, saying something like, I want to mill my opponents in Phoenix is a win condition. I want to mill myself is part of a win condition. So it's gen in general, you want to be very specific and broad at the same time. So like Sasuke, I want to attack with creatures. It makes sense. You're going to kill people with combat damage. And I think that second build of Phoenix where you're milling yourself falls into the next category, which is there are some times where it's sort of more difficult to nail down or it's more open-ended what your goal of the deck and how you win is. Like Derevi, I want to tap or untap stuff this usually leads you towards stacks because in stacks decks tapping being able to untap when nobody else can is how sort of how you win mm -hmm. i want my stuff to untap but nobody else's so it leads you to stacks um there's a whole bunch of commanders and i'd say the most the single most common edh deck falls into what i would call the accumulated value <laughs> category which the goal of the deck is i want to out attrition my opponents i want to accumulate more value and this is like rune marin original marchesa can be this brea the mm -hmm. phoenix build i think you talked about which is mill myself is probably a value based strategy yeah so Carador is similar in, in that like i'm gonna yep. win because i'm gonna play my creatures eight times whereas you're only playing them once yeah and they're gonna be shriek moss every time i play it it kills one of yours so i'm just a, i'm just slowly getting value and before you know it like i've just outvalued you and, and my board's huge and yours is gone and you don't have as many cards in hand and all mm -hmm. that other stuff um this is an interesting one canaios and tiro this is see this is one of the really open-ended ones because it's yeah. usually like i it's want also to, four colors so it's really open-ended i want to pillow fort and and then it's kind of up to you like Vinny tried to build the deck in a way that and encourage the other players to attack each other mm -hmm. or force them to even with certain cards that only allow you to attack to your left or you know xyz right um and then there's a whole class of decks and in competitive edh these are probably the most common which are yeah. the combo decks and i think the log line of the combo decks are i want to play specific cards 
I want to get specific cards into play or cast specific cards. Or know that I'm always going to get that card out. Yeah, and that's why many of the best... In fact, I think if you look at it, a large percentage of the Tier 1 competitive EDH decks are tutor generals. Mm -hmm. So they're finding specific cards. So Yisan. The Wandering Bard. Xur. The Enchanter. Yeah. Tazri, also a tutor. Oh, right. General Tazri. Yeah, who's it? A five-color tutor. I should... should, I don't like combo decks that much, but... (laughs) But th- that's why a lot of competitive decks are tutor-based because they are combo-based and yeah. finding the specific pieces and then playing them is how combos work. So Some decks aren't even tutor decks but still are combo decks. Like Kessler played one on Game Nights, which was his uh, well, Birthing Pod deck, which Birthing is Pod essentially is a, a combo. Yeah, which yeah. finding that card turns the rest of the deck on. And then there's Against the Grain <laughs> or Outside the Pumpkin decks. I'm glad you put Pumpkin in there. Yeah, well, I like that saying now. It's a great one. Um so, like, you could build Mizzix, but build it Goblin Tribal. You could, like, my Tim deck right. is a, a sort of, it's Riku, but it has nothing to do with that. It's all about tapping and untapping. I'd uh, say most of your a, decks are That's an are accumulated actually, value deck, though, really. Yeah, a lot of your decks are kind of outside the pumpkin because it's a five-color deck with something hidden inside. Right. Or... Uh, Jeremy Knoll's Villainous Wealth deck. That's outside the pumpkin. He's not, his, his main card that he wants to play is a sorcery. So he's mm-hmm. like, so regardless of what your answer to the question is, Asking yourself the questions is important so that you can begin to understand like what types of cards your deck wants. And once you know what it wants, you can start looking you know, at the individual cards. And so once I get to this point, I sort of like to look at the cards in three different ways. And uh, I have a disclaimer written down. Again, this is not going to be one size fits all for every EDH deck, mm-hmm. but it's a good way to look at your choices for most decks. Right. So the three categories I have are standalone enhancers and enablers what are you in life i'm a standalone kind of guy i think i'm an enhancer yeah i don't know if that's good or bad (laughs) or what but i I think i probably am um so standalone cards are cards that do something either just by itself or in concert with your commander and i think the fact that you just basically always have access to your commander means that that interaction is always available to you right and but if you play them into an empty board they do something so that's a card like in Rune, which is a flicker deck, if you play Thrag Tusk, that card is a standalone card, right? It, it gains you life. Um, it can make a, a token, yeah. right? It works really well with Rune, but even if Rune's not out, it still does something. In fact, most creatures, not all, but many will fit into the standalone category because they're creatures. So at the very least, you could attack with it. So it does something on its own. Yeah, and one thing to say about all three of these categories broadly is that the reason that they're good in the decks is that when you see it in your hand, you are excited to have it there. It's never a dead card, and that's really what we're trying to avoid is like all your cards should fit into one of these categories. Otherwise, you're just going to not have a good time. Um, Another one is a Craig Blanchett favorite. It's uh, Skittles, Skithrix, the Blight Dragon. In like a Saskia deck? Right. So in Saskia, it's awesome because with Saskia, you just, it has haste. It comes out, bashes somebody, gives a bunch of infect, and gives another person that amount of infect. And if you have pump spells or whatever. But yeah. this card's also great if you just play it by itself. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, as soon as you play a card like this, even without Saskia out, the threat of you playing your commander the next turn is there, but also just the threat of someone could die to it the next turn as well. Pretty good. Yeah, because you can be in a situation where you play it, hit somebody right away, and then even if they get shields up, you can hit another person and place. You can play Saskia, naming the person you hit the first time, hit somebody else, and finish them off. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's a very good card. And the third one, 
is oh, yes. Uh, yes, this is this is close to your heart. Yes, Mere Battlesphere, which is um, a card that I've noticed pops up a lot in cube and stuff online because it is such an impactful card when it hits the board, and then when you pair it up with another commander, it just goes nuts. Mere Battlesphere is a seven drop that makes four one one colorless mirror artifact tokens when it enters the battlefield. And then whenever it attacks, you can tap your untapped mirrors, and then it gives mirror bowser plus X plus O, and then deals X damage to the defending player. So it's got all this text on it. By itself, if you play this card, even if you don't have anything else on the board, people have to deal with it because you just made five creatures for one card. Yeah, this is like instant board. Like, I have nothing. Boom, I play mirror bowser sphere. Holy crap, I have a ton of stuff. Yeah. So, But in Brea... It, so that's a standalone alone card. But if you played in Brea, now you also have the ability to sack those mirror and do Brea's abilities with them and things like that. So it's a it's a very good card in a lot of decks. It's also a great card in Rune. Yeah, because <laughs> you just flicker it. You just flicker it. It's also a great card in Saskia because <laughs> it just it's gonna get him for a lot of damage. Your Battlefield Battlesphere is just pretty good. Yeah. in general, being colorless is nice. So I think we understand the standalone category. Let's go to the enhancers category. So Enhancers, I, I just made up this name, but it's sort of cards that either amplify... Yeah, it could be the amplifier, too, I guess. Right. But I like Enhancer. Or it's, it either amplifies or is amplified by the effects of your commander, the standalone cards, or other Enhancers. So these cards often don't do anything by themselves, but they just have a high probability to be able to do something in your deck. So the first one is Panharmonicon in, let's say, Rune or Brago. Mm-hmm. Um, or even like Marin, decks with a lot of enter the battlefield effects. So Panharmonicon was, I think, the consensus number one non-legendary card from uh, 2016 that we said. Yeah, I think the the viewers voted as yeah. well for Panharmonicon. So it's a four-drop artifact. If an artifact or creature entering the battlefield causes a triggered ability of a permanent you control to trigger, that ability triggers an additional time. So you can double your enter the battlefield effects. There's some other fringe uses, but... In a rune deck or a brago deck or a marin deck where basically every creature is <laughs> basically doing something. every commander deck let's yeah. like it around but this is an amplifier because if you play it into an empty board it does nothing mm-hmm. you have to pair it with something but when that thing gets paired it it's awesome blows the roof off yeah um oh yep here's another good one grave pact uh grave pact and dictate of erebos very similar cards yep. in, the, in the deck like marin where it's an edict effect that's attached to now every single time one of your creatures dies, every other player has to sacrifice a creature. And with a card like Marin, where you want creatures to die already, it's great because it pairs up very obviously with hopefully other cards in your deck, like you have sacrifice outlets, like altars and stuff in this deck, and so it's all going to work together. But Grave Pact by itself, when it hits the board, doesn't do anything. You have to do something to make it go off. But again, it just has a very high likelihood to synergize with the other things your deck uh, is wanting to do. Right. And here's a really cool one, and um, somebody had recently asked me about this on on uh, email. It's Cloudform in uh, Brago decks. Oh, so, interesting. So Cloudform is one blue-blue for an enchantment, and it says when Cloudform enters the battlefield, it becomes an aura with enchant creature. Manifest the top card of your library and attach Cloudform to it. And it says, a chain of creature has flying and hexproof. So you manifest top card. That means it's a, uh, you take the top card of your library, you put it face down, and it's a 2-2 creature. But you can look at the face down card, and if it's a creature, you can flip it up by paying its mana cost. So mm-hmm. it sort of becomes like a little bit like a morph. Yeah. So uh, it does make a 2-2 creature, but that's just not high enough impact in Commander that I would consider that a standalone card, like right. a 2-2 flying hexproof. But in Brago... You flicker the cloud form and the manifested creature. They both go out. 
Cloudform comes back in, manifests the top card of your library, but the card that was manifested before comes back in face up because the card doesn't come in manifested right. uh, from exile. So you can just freely flip up whatever it was that's If it down was there. a sorcery or instant, you would keep it face down, I think. <laughs> Otherwise, you just sort of yeah, want you, you or, or you do it just to cloud form again yeah. because, you know, just to, to do another shot. Well, the cool thing is the cloud form, you can choose the cloud form specifically yes. and keep the creature face yeah, down. Yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah, you're right. You don't have to flicker the, ma- the yeah. manifest card. Yeah. Brago, what a card. So this is an enhancer. I, uh, you know, it just works very well with the other cards in your deck and with your commander. Um, okay, so I, I think enhancers make sense, right? Mm-hmm. They are the cards that do little on their own, but with other effects in your deck, they're very, very powerful. And then the last category is enablers. And these are cards, and this is a little bit more of a broad category, but cards that cover a weakness or fill gaps in your strategy. You know... Board wipes and spot removal can kind of be considered in some ways enablers. Right. Because they're not along the main strategy of your deck. Because no deck, well, not no deck, but very few decks say, well, my, you know, what's the goal of my deck? To remove problematic cards that other people have. That's a thing you want to do, but it's not usually the goal of your deck. Um, Unless you're playing like a, I don't know, some people, like a Baral deck maybe just wants to counter everything. Yeah. I, I assume eventually it'll win in some way. I, th- I think of enablers often too as like silver bullets or sort of like the shield that no one saw coming. Yes. Uh, they're sort of like the, oh, gotcha. Too bad you didn't see, you know, like you were trying to do this one thing that you thought was going to shut down my entire strategy and then I had I had, I had X. It. Yep. Or, it's kind of like the, uh, uh, in Game Nights, I forget which episode, Josh Kim had Eerie Interlude right. in response to your Merciless Eviction and... It was just so swingy because, you know, everyone's counting on that effect to happen, and basically he loses nothing mm-hmm. and is in a great position after that. So yeah, and actually something happened in the last game nights episode we just filmed, uh, where a player did something to Josh doing something, and it was on the board. But boy, was it a silver it was bullet! Sweet. It was definitely an enabler. So some examples are like heroic intervention in the Rishkar deck. So Heroic Intervention, it's a, uh, it's an instant. It's one in a green, and it says, Permanence you control gain hexproof and indestructible until end of turn. See, that's not along the main plan of the Rishkar deck. It wants to put a bunch of 1-1 counters on, right? use the mana from the creatures that are now mana dorks to put more 1-1 counters, play more creatures, and eventually attack. Well, being hexproof and indestructible for all my stuff is no part of that plan. And yet, you you know, when you're building the deck, you know, well, board wipes are going to destroy me, so I need... This, in, this enabler that enables my strategy to actually have a chance to work. Yeah, not to mention it does work really well because your creatures in Rishkar can tap for mana, so you can always leave up sort of heroic intervention mana at the same time. Right, you can sort of hide it. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Eroas. Eroas in Saskia is a really good one, yeah. Yeah, this card's also really good, I found, in my Kalia deck mm-hmm. um, because it allows you to basically swing freely with Kalia, have her hard to block, but also because Eros says prevent all damage that will be dealt to attacking creatures you control. You can just freely swing your commander in that has to deal, that has to go to combat against someone. So even if everyone has blockers, and even if everyone can block you with menace, Eros still lets you swing freely. Uh, and in Saskia too, it's like, hey. They I have can... menace, so they can't block them all, and you're not going to lose creatures, so you can just swing out and be yeah. like, I don't care, whatever gets through hits you and this other person, so. Good luck. Yeah. Um, glacial chasm in Nekusar. Uh, I've talked about glacial chasm so often on the show. I'm sure, sure a lot of people are rolling their eyes. It's a land, cumulative upkeep, pay two life. You have to sack a land when it comes into play. 
you can't uh, attack with any of your creatures, but it says prevent all damage that would be dealt to you. Mm-hmm. Very so, incredible text. Prevent all damage. Combat every, any kind of damage. And again, the Nekusar deck does not have anything in its logline that says prevent damage to myself. It wants people to draw cards, and then it wants to tax people for drawing those cards. And yet, because you're not doing combat-based damage, you can play something like Glacial Chasm to just allow you to survive while Nekusar you know, slowly ticks everybody down for five or six life for a few turns until they're dead. Yeah. Uh, and the last one is the card that has become, since Prophet of Crufix, I think, uh, got banned, probably our most mentioned card. Yeah. And probably the most, the closest replacement for it. I think the last um, episode of Game Nights, a lot of comments were like, oh, crap, I got to put Vidalcan Orrery in a lot of my decks. <laughs> yeah, the they, card. We showed the power of it. But Dalkinori is, I think, probably outside of Panharmonicon because this can just go in every deck. And honestly, I think should. It's almost at the same point as Soul Ring. It, yeah. I mean, it's very... I think I have it in almost all my decks. I, I might not have it in like one or two for very specific reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Vidalkin Orrery is just an artifact, cost four, and it says uh, all your spells have flash, basically. Yeah, non-lands. Yeah. So this is... Yo, sorry, you may just, sorry, not even not. It just says you may cast, cast spells as though they have flash. Yeah. What am I saying? I'm crazy. So you don't have a deck probably where the logline has anything to do with casting spells at instant speed. Mm-hmm. And yet Vidalcan Ori enables so many strategies. Again, it goes in the Rishkar deck or the Titania deck. A lot of green likes it a lot because they don't have a good way to give their stuff haste, but casting it on the end set before your turn is basically haste. But again, it's not part of your main plan, but it enables your plan. Yeah, it enables every single plan if you think about it because it just gives you more options. And we already talked about the reason that card draw is so great is that you want to have options in your hand. And in this case, you have options at instant speed at any time. So you can always be in reaction to something instead of being proactive. So I think it's very helpful to look at your cards when you're sort of sorting them and building your deck into these three categories, standalone, enablers, and enhancers. And as we can see, and I've just... I looked at a bunch of our decks, Jimmy, mm-hmm. uh, on on Tapped Out Holy. that we've used over the years. Did you grade them? And I started by just roughly laying out like how many um, uh, in each category we had. And so I've got some rough numbers for you. And again, they're going to be rough, just like the the stats we usually use. Rough stats. Rough stats. Oh man, we're not as good at that at that segment. So. Here's what I would suggest, just based on that data from looking at the decks we've talked about basically over the years on the show. Standalone cards, you want about 25. So mo- the bo- bulk of your your meat is going to be stuff that works with no help at all mm-hmm. and works a lot better with your commander out, most of it, but by itself still does something. You want about 10 to 12 enhancers and then 7 to 8 enablers. So you just don't have a ton of room for cards that aren't in your main plan. Remember, card draw, mana ramp, board wipes, and uh, single target removal are also outside of your main plan mm-hmm. uh, sometimes. Sometimes they're within it. Like I said, if you're a Cidic Slime and you're in Rune, then that's within your plan, but it's still a single target removal spell. And also you'll notice, okay, 25 standalone cards, 10 to 12 enhancers, 7 to 8 enablers. It's like 45 cards. Yeah, Josh, that's way more than 31 cards. You said 31 cards was what we had to play with for the meat of our deck here. And that's why we're advising you to play 120-card decks <laughs> here on the Command Zone. Just straight-up cheat. <laughs> um, so what gives? Well, this is where we talk about a concept that, I, that I'm going to call overlap. We talk about this a lot in the show, too. Yeah, so a, a good analogy is when you're building your mana base. 
let's say you're playing a red green deck, right? Mm -hmm. Usually what people do is they count up the number of sources they have available for each color. So let's say you have 10 mountains, 10 forests, and then you have three lands that tap for red and green, like a life land, a bounce land, and a guild gate. Mm -hmm. Well, now I've got 13 green sources, 13 red sources, but only 23 cards. Hey. Not 26 cards. It's because those dual lands serve a dual purpose. They are a literal two-for-one on the card, if you want to view it that way. Right, so they overlap. So the art of deck building is really about finding overlaps in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. You know, finding the synergy, and it really takes your deck to the next level. So you basically take that same philosophy we just talked about with the mountains and forests, and you apply it to the rest of your deck. And instead of colors, you're talking about mechanics or whatever categories that your deck has. So, for example inspiring call in the rish card deck this is a card that's very much like heroic intervention except it says tuna green for an instant draw a card for each creature you control with a one one counter on it those creatures gain indestructible until end of turn bing that's like your dual land in you know dual land taps for red and green well inspiring call works for card draw and saving your butt it's an enabler yeah so now, that's one of your enablers, but it counts in two categories. And this is how we get above the 31 cards I said that we had available. Mm -hmm. um, I like this next one. Uh, Titania is a deck that's all about having lands get sucked into the graveyard one way or the other and creating 5-3 elementals. Constant Mists is an amazing card that is a basically a fog, but a repeatable one where you can buy it back by sacrificing a land. And it just says, prevent all combat damage that we dealt this turn. Now, when that says prevent all combat damage that will be dealt this turn and create a 5-3 and do whatever else in your deck that likes seeing lands go to the graveyard, then amazing. Yeah, so in Titania, it's standalone and an enabler because you can literally just cast Constant Mist, pay its buyback of Sacrifice of Land only just to make a 5-3. You are not, you don't even care about preventing combat damage. Nobody even attacked you. Mm -hmm. and I've done that many times on the end step before my turn. I just cast it three times, sacrifice three lands, make three 5-3s. Yeah. So pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is a good one. Uh, know, I, I want to say before we read this card on EDH rec, this card is actually like per, not a lot of people have put this into their attractive decks. Oh, really? And there's a few of these lands and you need to put them in there. I actually put this in my, uh, a, a similar land in the mono red deck. Cause I just needed more ways to use my mana off on, on off turns. Yeah. These, these lands are a little better than they look. I think storage lands. Now they're a little clunky, but in a deck like Atraxa, which can proliferate these, this card is nuts. It's ramp from a land. So yep. you can tap it to add colorless to your mana pool, or you can tap one and tap the land to put a storage counter on Dreadship Brief. And then the third ability, you can pay one mana to remove X storage counters from it to add X mana any combination of blue and or black to your mana pool. So you play this, or you get a storage counter on somehow, and then the tracks is out, whoop, proliferates up. So whoop. now, in concert with your commander, this is a ramp card, but it also takes up a land slot. Mm -hmm. So there's overlap with your lands as well. Something to pay attention to. Like the Rish card deck, there's a land that has graft on it. Right. It taps for, for green or and it grafts. That's just a card. It, that's just a land slot and a ramp slot or a land slot and a standalone slot. Yeah, Cross and Verge is similar, I yes. think, for that same reason. It fixes your mana and also ramps you. Yep. So. Um, okay. Oh, man, I'm behind. Whee! That was a good one. That was a good one. I almost wore it as a hat. Gave your forehead a brush on, the, on its way out. <laughs> so ideally, you want your single target removals and your board wipes to 
to fit into this category as well because yeah you've got 10 10 5 5 as far as card draw man ramp single target removal and board wipes but if they can also overlap into the standalone and enablers categories then you just have more room for more stuff right so yeah being a progress we talked about earlier that's a board wipe and an enhancer yeah it works with rich car and it gives it plus and plus encounters yep. yeah in the rich card deck because it gives plus and plus encounters and now can uh, tap for mana yeah um, rich card is such a great example because anything that says put a counter or plus and plus encounter on this makes it ramp right which is which is like oh it, it builds itself. Yep. That's why the, the card ends up being so powerful, because the overlap is so huge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this oh, is, this Solemn Simulacrum and Brea, which is great. So Brea obviously has the ability to sacrifice artifacts, and Solemn is a card that by itself is a standalone that goes in almost every single deck, because when it comes in, it gets you a basic land out of your deck. At the same time, it also draws you a card if it dies. So with Brea, this is both ramp by getting you a land, card draw by dying, and enhancer, because it makes Brea even better, because <laughs> she has sacrifice targets. Exactly. Brea wants to sacrifice things, and because of that, Brea also has a lot of ways to bring things back. Mm -hmm. So just playing Solemn a lot can just ramp you, draw you cards, you know, get that momentum really going. Yeah. Um, Treasure Cruise in Vile Smasher. So in Vile Smasher, what you want is to play really big spells. So playing a card that draws you cards that's a big spell that doesn't cost a lot of mana... It just sort of all fits in there in the nice package where Treasure Cruises really shines in that deck. Yeah. Uh, here's another attraction. Just hit someone for eight. Yeah. Fertilid. So Fertilid in Atraxa, Fertilid is a card that enters with 1-1 one, one counters, but you can basically remove a 1-1 one, one counter and pay one in a green to Rampant Growth, mm -hmm. basically, which uh, you find a basic land and put it onto the battlefield tapped. So with Atraxa you can proliferate and just keep doing that every turn. I mean, Rampant Growth's already a card that we would play, so yeah. being able to cast sort of infinite Rampant Growth, or one per turn... It's pretty good. Right. I so, mean, this is also very good, obviously, in Rishgar. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the cards that overlap are cards that are reusable with your commander, basically. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, you know, Ascetic Slime is great with, with Rune because you don't just blow up one thing, you blow up a bunch of things. So it becomes an enhancer in addition to a standalone card and, you know... Well, if they ever touch ramp or card draw, they're going to be, and they work with your commander, they're going to be very, very good cards. Fertilid, by the way, is a great group hug card because you can have any player search their oh, land for it a does basic. a target player. So if you want to be like, hey, you're behind on mana? Not anymore. Yeah, don't Fertilid. attack me. I'll get you an extra land. Yeah, get how you a land. Ooh. Maybe even two if I've got enough mana. All right, how do I play four of these in my deck? <laughs> you have to play it in modern or something, yeah. I guess. <laughs> it wouldn't work as good against with your opponent in that. They're like, but I can't attack anyone else. I still attack here. Sorry. Yeah, sorry, man. Thanks for the land, I guess. So this also uh, sort of goes into the reason why tutors are so good, right? Because they are just overlap with your entire deck. So Demonic Tutor represents every card in your deck. So yeah. it's every category. It's like the spy kit yeah. <laughs> of your deck. So that's... A, and it's not just to go find combos. Tutors are just really good with just they're going to like demonic tutor synergizes with every single black deck because you just go get whatever card at that moment works the best yeah and sometimes you want to use it to just to get the best card like solemn sometimes i'd be like i need a tutor for solemn because in my brea deck i know it's going to get me all three of these things which i need of right now to catch up yep. and that's that's why the card is just amazing all right so a big question people have at this point right so you've got all your cards you've gathered them you've sort of put them loosely into their categories you're trying to narrow it down how do i know which cards to cut you know, likely at this point, you've got two or 300 cards, you know, so that's that's usually where I'm Flip at. Flip a coin. <laughs> You're trying to figure out, you know, how do I get it down to be a legal deck? Mm -hmm. So I suggest comparing the cards in their respective categories and keeping in mind sort of the fundamental 
um, questions about what your deck wants to do and how it wins. So those yeah, early questions we ask. Always be asking yourself, does this card help me do what this deck wants to do? Right. So in a Marin deck, you might have a Doomblade set aside. Doomblade is a good card. It's just two mana, instant, kill a non-black creature. Yep. You also have a Shriek Maw in your, in your, in your pile, which does basically the same thing. Uh, it's a creature for four and a black. It's a three-two. When it enters the battlefield, destroy target non-artifact, non-black creature. And it has evoke, so you can cast it for one and a black and then immediately sacrifice it. So if you're in a Marin deck, the choice is really easy, right? Mm-hmm. Doomblade and Shriekmaw do basically the same thing, so I'm going to take the Shriekmaw. Yep, because it enables what my commander wants to do. It enhances the deck, and the evoke cost on it specifically is the important part here. It, it, it accomplishes what you want to do for the same mana cost at a different speed, not instant and also you can't destroy artifact creatures but still close enough and the upside of shriek maw over doom blade is so much higher that you would always take shriek maw in the marin deck but there might be decks where you wouldn't because you don't have a way to sort of recur it or reuse it in mm-hmm. which case the doom blade being instant uh and also hitting artifact creatures would make it worth it yeah um so the very similar comparison is in mizix we both have music stacks, Jimmy. Of the Is Magnus. Yeah. And so if you were having to choose between Mold Drifter, which is basically like Shriek Maw, except you draw two cards instead of destroy a creature. And it's a 2-2 flyer if you don't evoke it. Yep. And Steady Progress, which is two and a blue for an instant. It says proliferate and then draw a card. The choice is obvious. Steady Progress is awesome because it also ramps you if you have an experience counter from mizzix it does draw you a card so it replaces itself it's not two cards but you're also mizzix you're not concerned with playing creatures necessarily you don't care if you get a 2-2 on the board if you have enough mana for it you want the most value and also steady progress could cost one blue at this point correct and you're in mizzix so your ability to probably replay an instant or sorcery or reuse an instant or sorcery is way higher than your ability to replay a creature, creature. yeah so Moldrifter in that case it's basically the flip side of what doomblade and shriekma is yeah and why in different decks you're going to choose cards with similar effects over other cards um okay so let's talk about general p- parameters for creatures, artifacts, instant sorceries, etc. Now a lot of people ask for a template like how many creatures does the average EDA deck have it's not really useful to answer that question because it's so varied Mm -hmm. but what i can say is that if your deck cares about a certain card type then so like um rune wants to have creatures specifically creatures with enter the battlefield effects or or uh daxos the the newer one daxos the The return the returned uh cares about enchantments so you know, how many enchantments would you want in that deck? Brea wants artifacts. Mizzix wants instant sorceries. Yep. So a good general number that I found, again, when I looked at all our decks, if a deck cared about a certain thing, creatures, artifacts, whatever, it usually had somewhere in the range of 30 to 35 of, the, of that card type. Right. And a lot of those cards have the overlap that we've talked about. Correct. So sometimes it was more. Sometimes it was a little bit less, but I'd say generally that's a good template. So if your deck, if you're building a deck and it's a creature deck and it's and the commander is doing something, playing around with creatures, Marin plays with them as they come and go out of the graveyard. 
you know, rune flickers them once they're already out, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. It's going to want somewhere in the range of 30 to 35 of creatures. If it's artifacts, you know, Brea, it's going to want 30 to 35 artifacts. Yeah, another way to think about it, too, is when you draw your opening hand of seven, you want a pretty good chance of drawing one of these kinds of cards into your hand. If you draw, for instance, in a rune deck and you don't have a single creature in your hand that rune can use, then it's, you know, it's not... Sad. <laughs> you're not going to be in a, a happy place. You're just hoping to either play card draw spells to draw those cards, or you hope you naturally top deck them. Yeah. Um... Okay, so the next thing I wanted to touch on, because we haven't talked about it in a while, I think like episode nine or something, we yeah, had Marshall with on. Marshall Sutcliffe. Yeah. Great episode. So this is quadrant theory. This, I think, is actually a Brian Wong thing from his old days on Limited Resources. And it's thinking about each card. So this is, again, we're still talking about cutting cards and, and knowing which cards to cut. You know, you know you want 30 to 35 creatures, but how do you know which 30 to 35 creatures you want in your deck? Uh, we like to think about them in what's called quadrant theory. So there's four stages of the game kind of and you evaluate the card in each stage and how important they are right so there's the developing stages of the game the early stages of the game there's um when i'm at parity in the game so when the game's sort of tied or it's not clear who's ahead nobody has a clear advantage when i'm behind in the game which for commander is actually most of the time because there's so (laughs) many players yeah uh and then when i'm ahead in the game when i'm winning and for those people that do listen to limited resources, I think you have to recalibrate slightly for Commander. Yeah. Because in one-on-one, you don't have to worry about the quadrant when I'm ahead that much. Because when you're ahead in limited, usually any card is basically going to be good in that situation. Like a 3-3 creature. Well, I'm already ahead, and then I add a 3-3 creature. Well, I'm more ahead. Yeah. In Commander, it doesn't work that way because very often a player at any given point that's ahead in the game does not win that game. Yeah, in fact, it's the weird king of the hill battle, whereas like, sometimes you don't actually want to get that far ahead because a board wipe hits you much harder than it hits everyone else. That's why Commander is a format where we do employ a lot of what you'd call win more cards because I actually have to actually win because being currently winning is not good enough. Oftentimes, I can get knocked off that perch. Yeah. Um, um, it, it, well, I was going to say a card like Soul Ring, for instance, is interesting because it's a card you would never cut from a deck. Right. But when you are at parity, it's, it's not okay. that great. Yeah. When you're ahead, what Doesn't does it do matter? Anything. When you're yeah. behind or developing stages, specifically developing stages, it's so good in the developing stages because it gets you so far ahead of everyone else that it is always worth it. And because it outweighs everything else so much in one category, you don't need to necessarily think of how good it is in the other ones to take sort of notches away from it. Yeah, that's a really good point. It doesn't, you're not looking at a card like how does it perform overall in each category. It's how strongly does it perform overall. If it's so overwhelmingly good in a situation, you, you, there's a good chance, even though it's bad in the other three quadrants, yeah. you might still play it. Like uh, Insurrection can be really, really bad, right. you know, during developing stages. It, it might not even be great, you know, when you're ahead. It might not close out the game, because if you're ahead in the manner of, like, I've got four creatures and nobody else has them, <laughs> yeah. interaction doesn't do anything. So, but it's so good when you're behind. It's so good when you're a parody that it, it's a card that you probably want to play. Yeah. So that's an, those are things to think about, again, when you are evaluating which cards to cut. Um, now we're into the next thing to think about and there's a lot and you've got to weigh these these things right and the next one is curve something we've talked about a lot recently on the show uh that's mana curve and by mana curve we mean this the the cmc the converted mana cost of the spell so for those that don't know if you look in the top right corner of the card the cmc is just the total when you add it all up so mm-hmm. risk risk car costs two and a green well that's three mana so on your mana curve 
that goes in the three mana slot. Yeah, and a lot of times you'll see people when they're deck building after drafting or whatever, or even just on Moto, they lay out their cards on mana curves. So you put all your zero cost spells, then your one cost spells, then your two, three, four, and sometimes separate from creature to non-creatures just to see what it looks like. And in general, it should look like a bell curve. So if you're watching the video, it should go like this. Wee. Yep. So the it curves up. You have very you have a few one drops, more two drops, quite a few three and four drops, less five drops, and then six, seven, eight, nine. You, ha you it goes way down where you barely have any by the time you're at you know yeah. seven basically. And the reason that curve is important, and the reason you want to have it like that curve, is the same reason that you want to have a certain percentage of your deck do things where it's like on turn two, you want to have a two drop. Turn three, you want to have a three drop. Turn four, you want to have a four drop. Uh, and obviously, you don't want to have a bunch of nine, ten drops because if you draw those in your opening hand. And the more of them you put in your deck, the higher chance that is you're just not going to be able to do anything. Yeah, you just don't want to be sitting there where, like, I don't play anything for the first four turns. Or yeah. I get to the fourth turn, and then I don't play anything until turn eight. This is the natural balance of why magic works as a game. Correct. Um, so looking at your curve will help you in a lot of cases with what you cut and why. Because you can just look and go, well, I like these six cards, but they all cost seven mana. And I can't have set six, seven drops in my deck. I can only have two or three. So I just have to I have to choose from those to take out, you know, a certain amount. Now different decks will have different considerations. Some can't play any seven drops at all, depending, and some can play more because they're very ramp focused. Yeah. Like Rishkar can play a bunch of higher drops because you know you're gonna reasonably be able to get there because you're also a mono green deck that has ramp cards in there. Um all right, so Oh, oh, one thing I want to say is it doesn't mean play bad like two drops because you need to fill the two drop <laughs> slot. No, that means your job is to find two drops that are good according to the quadrant theory of commander. Yeah. So something like Scavenging Ooze, which is a two drop that you can play on turn two, but it has a lot of utility later on in the game where it's removing things from graveyards and stopping certain, you know, dredge type shenanigans that make it very powerful even it, when you draw it, you know, when the board's at parity, or even possibly when you're behind, depending on what it is. Deathrite Shaman's another one that's a very good one-drop in a lot of decks because it can ramp you, and if you draw it late, you can start, you know, exiling instants and sorceries, dealing damage to everybody. It can do some stuff still. Yeah. Yeah, and that, often when you're playing a game, these two drops, these three drops, these are the cards that when you play it, other people will have the reaction of like, wow, that's a really good card in that deck. Like, mm -hmm. that's kind of where you want every card of your deck to be, whereas when you play it, it's like, this does all these things for my deck, it's a sweet card, and it fits well either within the theme or what your deck's trying to do. It enables, enhances, etc. Yeah, finding those early drops that really hit that sweet spot where people say that is one of the best things you can do in, in deck building. It's, and one of the best feelings you get when you're playing, yeah. too. You're like, sweet. Yeah, it is good, and I thought yeah. of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the last thing we wanted to talk about. So so there you go. That's kind of the the overall template of of deck building with some philosophy thrown in. You know, you want 10 mana ramp, 10 card draw, 5 board wipes, 5 single target removal, somewhere around 25 standalone cards, 10 to 12 uh, enhancers, and 78 enablers. Mm -hmm. And then you you want to know, like, if my deck is very focused around one type of card. It could be Planeswalkers, it could be Artifacts, it could be Enchantments. You want somewhere in the range of 30 to 35 of those, generally, just to give yourself a good chance to, to draw the cards that you really need to make your deck work. Yep. So that's, that's the wrap-up of that. And now I wanted to talk about just some common pitfalls because this episode is really going to appeal to people, I think, who are not super well-versed in building their own commander decks and or maybe haven't even done it before. And so I just wanted to, to talk to Jimmy really quick about, you know, what are some common issues you see with, like, quote-unquote, bad decks? And I'm, I'm not throwing shade at anybody, you know. I've built bad decks. In fact, I've built them 
at the time when I already considered myself a good deck builder. You know, my Masaryk <laughs> deck is bad. And and it's just some decks, they don't seem super powerful or mm-hmm. they feel suboptimal. And what are some things that, that you see commonly in bad decks? Uh, the first one that you wrote down that is probably the most common problem is too little ramp in card draw. Uh, I think too little ramp is actually something that a lot of decks suffer from because people just want to put more sweet cards in their deck. And it's like, it's a pitfall that everyone falls into. Like, would you... Do you want to put this cultivate in there? Do you want to put this sweet three drop that can kill things? Yeah. It's like, well, obviously you need to prioritize and figure out where to make space for ramp cards. But I think a lot of people just sort of, the first thing to go is like, nah, get rid of this ramp card. Right. Nah, get rid of this card. Because it's card. not as, it doesn't seem as fun. But you know what is fun? Playing your spells later on, the big ones. Yeah. And playing them early too. Yeah. Um, yeah. And as a result, people run out of gas they'll be at the point where they have two cards in their hand and everyone else is like stocking up on cards they're doing sweet synergy and they're like if only i could have played this earlier it's like let me tell you how (laughs) (laughs) yeah not enough card draw definitely is a big one because just not enough options so you see those decks a lot of times the bad decks are the ones that just like somebody plays a doubling season and because you don't have any card draw you're just sort of stuck hoping to get lucky to draw one of your two or three answers where if you have enough card draw you have a better chance of hand, having the card in hand at the moment you need it to be like or no. ways to get it. Yeah, yeah. Um, too few answers is another one I, I see a lot. Just because it's not the fun part. Again, this is not the fun part of building the deck. So a lot of times you get to the end and you're like, ah, eh, I don't really need Path to Exile. Yeah, get rid of that Cross and Grip. Uh, yeah, Cross and Grip is a good one. One I just force myself to put into green decks. But when you're deck building, it doesn't feel good because it never overlaps. Mm-hmm. you know it always is an enabler and those just kind of feel bad and yet when you have cross and grip in a game you're always so happy to have it yeah and it's also one of those things where it's like ugh, there have been so many games where i've never seen a problematic enchantment that i had to deal with it's like well you're probably remembering a small minority of the games yeah, honestly, exactly. <laughs> because most of the games are... always some an artifact or enchantment that you would happily take care of we should say cross and grip is uh it's an instant in green with split second that destroys an artifact or enchantment so yeah. they just can't do anything you just you get to destroy you it. get to destroy yeah. it i mean you there was also the pitfall i found a lot of people where it's like someone else would take care of it it's like sometimes you have to be the person to take care of it, especially if it involves you trying to win that turn or do something, you know, doing that enables you to do the thing that you want to do in your deck. It's not just like, I'll let someone else do it. And this last one, I think, is the single biggest pitfall of sort of new deck brewers and, and people who are building their first decks or their early decks. It's just lack of focus. It's just the cards don't seem to really gel together well. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole is not greater than the sum of its parts. The deck it's unclear what the plan of the deck is. Yeah. I, I, the very first commander deck I built, and I remember Alex Kessler, you know, he looked through it afterwards, and one of the cards he was like, you got to take this out. I just had Fleece Main Lion in there. It's just a two-mana 3-3 three, three that can become monstrous and eventually indestructible. This is a, you know, it was being played in standard, I think, at the time, and I was like, seems it's a sweet card. Seems yeah. good. Two-mana 3-3, yeah. three, three, good rate. He's just like, it doesn't do anything with anything else you're doing. Like, it, yeah. you know, that's just not good enough in commander. And he was right. No, he's 100% right. Yeah, I think, I mean, here's the thing is like when I first built my deck, I just slapped together all the cards I had. Right. And I think that's how a lot of people start. And, you know, I think that's A, totally fine. But the way that you're going to have more fun is by, if you just even slapped all your cards together and make sure you hit the ramp card draw and all the other categories, then your deck's going to be way better off. And then it's going to be a lot more apparent too when you play it. Oh, this card is great and I could play it early, but it didn't really do what I wanted to do. And it was really situational and didn't work out. So, like, cool, I know I want to replace this with something. And you get a better idea once you're able to 
Because the hardest part about playtesting a deck that doesn't have card drawn ramp is that you don't really get to playtest it. Yeah, because you don't <laughs> know did is did I just not get lucky that game? You know, and I didn't draw the pieces in the right order or what? Yeah, yeah, that's a really frustrating thing to feel after you play a game where it's like I didn't actually learn anything because I wasn't able to play my spells on time or I ran out of gas too early. So those are the feel bads. Remember, always ask those questions. What is my deck's goal? How, in broad terms, does it want to win? You know, again, it often has to do with the commander, but not always. Yeah. And that will tell you things like, is Fleece Main Lion good in this deck? I probably think of a deck probably where Fleece Main Lion is good. It's probably not. It does get indestructible. It gets a 1-1 counter when you monstrous it, so maybe there's a deck. The other card I had in that deck was uh, Assemble the Legion mm-hmm. that I remember him pointing to. And that's just a very good card. It just... It's sort of, uh, it makes tokens every turn, but every turn it makes more. So in the first turn it makes one, and then yeah. it makes two, then it makes three, then it makes four. It just kind of wins the game on itself. Right. But again, I, it wasn't a token strategy deck. It was just a good card. I was like, this card seems awesome. Put yeah. it in there. But it didn't have, it didn't synergize in any way. So it was like every card in my deck was in the enabler category, and none were right. in the, the enhancer category. Yeah. I would also be careful not to put too many cards in the sort of the enabler category because it's easy to be like oh i'm gonna put every card that's the silver bullet against a board wipe in here it's like well now you don't have enough creatures to even use the cards for <laughs> like now you're in the you're building the deck that's goal is to stop everybody else's plan no you want to build a deck that has a plan of its own but can in specific spots stop the other people's plans yeah insurance policies are necessary but they should not dominate your overall strategy all right now it's time for to the listeners what was your big deck building level up moment? Have you noticed that you build decks differently, hopefully better than you used to? Mm-hmm. And if so, how? Yeah, if there's sort of an overarching lesson you've learned, either that applies to you specifically or even the meta that you're in that you found that, oh, because they play like this, I've had to build better. Right, yeah, no, and that's something we didn't talk about in this episode. We do have some episodes discussing the meta, but it is certainly valid to build your deck towards the decks you know exist in the playgroup that you normally play with. And that often just means changing a few of the numbers around. So instead of 10 card draw spells, maybe it's 13 or 7, you know, depending. Like, someone always plays a Howling Mind, so right. I don't need, I don't need as many. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or I know that, you know, I need a slightly more um, enablers in certain categories because I'm up against graveyard decks a lot or whatever. Yeah, yeah exactly. All right. Cardkingdom.com slash command zone. Make sure you guys check it out. It is our sponsor for the show. By going to this website and using our affiliate link, you basically let Card Kingdom know that we sent you and that you're also going to get a great product at a great rate with great service. And super fast. Yeah, super fast. Yeah, you know, you're going to buy Magic Cards if you're listening to this show. And it's great that, you know, we hope you love the show and you like to listen to it. And if you're going to buy Magic Cards anyway, then if you can do it in a way that's going to, you know, make the command zone still able to exist, well, hopefully you want to do that. Yes. We do appreciate it. All right, now it's time for the end step where we talk about something cool outside the world of magic. Oh, Jimmy's got me here. Sweet, because I was worried. I got you. I, I, was gonna, I was trying to say this last week, but the reason that I've just been disappeared in my life is because of the Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Not only is this potentially one of... Okay, not only is this the best game of the year Holy already, crap, we're only in March, dude. It is potentially the best game I've ever played in my entire life. And I'm being 100% ever? serious. Ever? Forever, ever? And, I mean, the only other game in this wow. category is Super Mario 64 and Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. Wow. In terms of games that have, like, honestly blown me away. 
He um, is not making the statement lightly. That's I'm crazy. I'm not making the statement lightly. Uh, because Don't make me buy a Switch, man. You can buy a Wii U or just borrow mine and play it on the <laughs> Wii U instead. It was actually originally, it's very similar to Twilight Princess in that it was developed for the, Twilight Princess was developed for the GameCube and then the Wii came out. So they released it for the Wii and both. Uh, and I think this Breath of the Wild might be like the last game they ever released for the Wii U too. <laughs> Um, but it's a great one to go out on. Uh, if you guys like open world games at all, so like Witcher. Yeah, um, I love open world games. Uh, Elder Scrolls. Elder like Scrolls, that. yeah. It's got all of those, except it actually feels open world, where every single wall and every single thing you see, you can make your way to. In Skyrim, there's a lot of unscalable cliffs and stuff. Right. In this game, it's like you want to like look at those mobs over there you want to kill them by using a sword in combat go for it how about you want to like use your magnesis ability to drop a giant boulder on them you can do that too how about you just go around and collect all these different boulders and then put explosives behind them and blow them up like you can do literally anything you want in the game i've never had that sensation before also i love zelda so it has the lore and the history of the game series i really love paired with an incredible like UI. I don't know how they built the world to be as flexible as it is, but I mean, I would suggest going online and there's a guy named Video Game Donkey and he does a lot of really funny reviews and he just has like a five minute compilation video of him just doing silly things in the game that are all made possible because the game is, it's the most open world feeling game I've ever played in my life. Oh man, I want to play it. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks a lot. It does I mean, look sweet. I watched you and Clint play it the other night and I was like, dang it, it looks It, sweet. it does look sweet and honestly, like it... it I know some people just don't like the Zelda series or have some hate toward Nintendo for whatever reason, but this some, is... It's, some, like, completely wrong people. <laughs> this is a game for gamers, I think, and and if you don't have a Switch, you can play it on the Wii U. At this point... I didn't I, know that, so I that's good. I guarantee you you're going to find someone that has a Wii U that they don't play anymore that you can borrow just to play this game, and the experience is identical. I mean, the Switch, you get to have it be more portable, but this game, I think, is best played on a big TV anyway. One of the greatest video games of all time. Yep. Wow. And I played a lot of video games. Wow. One of the greatest podcasts of all time <laughs> is the Masters of Modern Podcast. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but it feels true. Feels true. Alex Kessler and Ben Bateman, they talk about the modern format and all things competitive magic. By this time, actually, while you're listening to this, Modern Masters 2017 has come out. I'm assuming you're swimming in Snapcaster Mages and Lilianas of the Veil. What do you do with those cards? You play them in Modern. Who tells you how to play them? Alex and Ben, follow them on Twitter at the MMCast or find them on Collected.Company, which is our magic hub. They're right next to us. Just click on the little Masters of Modern. Also, the reason that they're one of the best is that they have great interviews and they bring on people like Patrick Chapin and Ruben Bressler and lots of actual like real pros, real professionals, people that know what they're talking about to discuss the format. So it's not like us where we're just kind of like, you know, willy nilly it. They're not time. scrubs like us. <laughs> yeah, so make sure you check them out. <laughs> also, make sure you go to our YouTube site and check out the video versions of the podcast that are edited by Terry Robertson. You can just go to youtube.com slash the command zone podcast where you can also find our game nights episodes, which I think is a great way to show how we put all of our sort of what we preach about into practice. And you also get to see the cases where like, wow, that card was an enabler and it worked super well in this situation. Now I understand why it's really integral for this deck to have. Yeah, I think game nights is and we'll probably explore this at some point so another reason to go watch them is it gives us all some shared moments that we can talk about yeah and why things happen so i would definitely encourage people when you get a chance to check out the game nights because i think 
in the future, I could see us doing an entire episode where we just discuss certain situations that have happened in game nights because it's hard to find a situation where everybody's on the same page about what happened yeah. and saw it. But yeah, game nights, it was documented. Yeah, but game nights gives us that ability. So yeah. check it out. Yeah, and Jeffrey Palmer, very big thanks to him. You can find him at Living Cards MTG. He makes the Living Card animations at the beginning of our regular podcast episodes. All right, that about wraps it up. Make sure, as well, if you guys know anyone that would like a deck-building template to listen to this episode. So it always helps when you all share it on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Email it to a friend. Post it on the forum. And also, you know, hit that subscribe button. We never ask people to do that, but it, it, it does help us. So, And we've been gaining subscribers, but we have a lot more views than, than subscribers on a lot of our videos. So, Yeah, well, the big thing about that, too, is that you get notified. Uh, so some people don't have their RSS feed to notify them. And oh, they'll right. maybe miss an episode. This way you get the video episode notification. Uh, there's a little bell you click as well on YouTube after you hit subscribe. And the bell goes, bing! bing. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Peace. For further inquiries, send an email to commandcast at rocketjump.com or ask us on Twitter at JF Wong and at Josh Lee Kwai. See you later, alligator. Greetings, humans. <laughs>